On this week's episode, Lee Griffin discusses switching his flip. I feel like the flip gets switched when I put the uniform on. Scott Boris reminisces about plowing snow on a runway. I used to plow snow at an airport, and it was really windy one day. And like, I was plowing snow, and like the, the runway is like covered in snow still. Like I wasn't even done plowing it yet. And we have return guest Jack Cochran on the program today to tell us about life lessons he learned in his early 30s. Me either. I figured that out when I was about 32 or 33 years old. It took me a while. <laughs> <laughs> then I was like, yeah, maybe this is a good idea. But yeah, well, yeah. If I'm <laughs> Welcome to the Foreign Podcast. This week we have Lake Erie Island's flight legend Jack Cochran joining us to talk about FAR 135.385 is large transport category airplanes, the turbine engine powered landing limitations at destination airports. And before you tune out, because this may not, you know, you're not a commercial aviator, um, we're going to try to make this as interesting, as interesting as we can. And it's, even though you are not bound by this reg, there's a lot of meat here where you can apply to your non-professional flying and um be safer pilot there's a reason they make i'll be sure to bring up some non-professional flying points along the way mr boris is still on with us we uh we had i believe our last guest was gandhi boris um i could be yeah it was Was that is that the last one we didn't have any episodes after oh we had an episode but no no guests we've had episodes but no guests so the, the pendulum swung very very far in the entertainment <laughs> yeah, direction. Yeah. So we need to swing it back over to the uh, informative uh, direction with this uh, Mr. Cochran here. And um, yes, just bear with us. It's good stuff. We're going to go uh, part A. No person operating a turbine engine powered large transport category airplane may take off that airplane at a weight that, parentheses, allowing for normal consumption of fuel and oil in flight to the destination or alternate airport, the weight of the airplane on arrival would exceed the landing weight in the airplane flight manual for the elevation of the destination or alternate airport and the ambient temperature anticipated at the time of landing. Mr. Boris, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I think that if you're basically, if you, well... Okay, large airplane, so that's going to be a problem. In a smaller aircraft, if you get out and push the tail down, if the tail comes back up, you know you're good as so far as weight. The Scott Boris general so, rule of thumb. Yeah. So, so in a larger airplane, that's going to be hard to do. So I'm not really sure, so I'm going to defer to Jack on that one. Okay. Mr. Cocker. I'm, I'm, I'm good with his answer. Yeah. <laughs> okay. no. I'll, I'll add to that a little bit. I, so, <laughs> Please. <laughs> I like your answer, though. I So, yeah, so that the beginning part of that regulation, and as we talked about, there are a lot of different parts there, but that's sort of like the most basic part that's kind of like a building block. So if you want to think about, like like Rob said, um, part 135 uh, hems you in more than, say, part 91. So if you're just a weekend flyer, you go up and fly with your family, you're you're not necessarily bound by that. That's sort of their initial attempt to hem you in and say, 
when you take off, obviously you have to be below the maximum takeoff weight, but you have to perform some planning. So they bring into account there a landing weight. So you have to plan, you know, where you're going to land. And then the fact that you can't do anything unnecessary after takeoff uh, to, to burn off, say, more fuel uh, to land. So the flight has to be planned from point A to point B. Uh, and you can't intend to do other maneuvers or do other things to say, hey, look, you know, we went from point A to point B. We had all this gas on board. Um, we're just going to do circles for two hours to make sure that we're below our maximum landing weight. Uh, the flight has to be completely and thoroughly planned from point A to point B. So that reg right there, that part of the reg is the basis for what comes after it. And so we're talking, um, typically this is going to be a part, uh, 25 certified airplane where like Cessnas and Pipers are part 23 certified where the, the transport category and the part 25, you, every airplane has a maximum takeoff weight, no matter what it's certified under, but uh, transport category typically will have a maximum landing weight because it's actually not certified to land at as much as it can take off with. Uh, just yeah, for that's an, correct. For anybody who didn't know, is that, is that typically only I'm in so transport? I'm so proud of you, Rob. I'm so proud of you. Rob. Well, I learned this from the podcast. Like, I learned this wow. from the podcast. So before we started so the podcast, fast. I did not know any of this. I didn't know I, part twenty five. Know this, whatever. Nice. Yeah. Well done. So part twenty. So yeah. And to add to that too, there's part twenty three. There are some jets that are actually certified in part twenty three. The Phenom is one of them. So, um, you know, there are a lot of uh, part 135 and 91k operators, NetJets and FlexJet are two examples that operate the Phenom 300. And that jet is actually certified under part 23, which gives, there's a lot, there's a lot more leeway under part 23, like you said. Um, but we, they still do a lot of part 23 aircraft still do have a maximum landing weight. So yes. Okay. All right. So that was that wrap up part a, what's the, uh, what's the one fifties maximum landing weight? Probably the max you know that? Like 1,645,600? Is it the same takeoff weight and landing weight, or is it different? I thought, take. I don't know. It's probably the same as takeoff weight. I think it depends on how many ladders you've ratchet strapped to the side to bring over yeah, the calories. Yeah, that will affect it. That will affect it. <laughs> <laughs> it's whatever you need it to be. Yeah. So, well, I mean, even the, even the... You can go over the max takeoff weight, too. Just don't G it up as much. That's right. <laughs> Even like guys, even the Islander had a lower landing weight than the maximum takeoff weight. So even small airplanes can have that. Really? Yeah. They can. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So for it's the not, listener, not that uncommon. Not that uncommon. For the listener, we've mentioned the Islander many times. And uh, Mr. Cochran be here being a Lake Erie Island flight legend himself. Uh, <laughs> this may come up again this episode even. The Islander, whenever we refer to the Islander, we are talking about a Britain Norman Islander. And the best way to oh man, I wish I could remember the name of the movie. Um, I'll put it James in the Bond. show notes. There's a James Bond scene. Okay, before I pr- release this, I'll figure it out which movie title. Watch that James Bond movie in the show notes. And there's a sweet scene where Brit Norman Islander is doing something like on a ski slope. I don't want to give away the the hook. Hmm. But if you've seen that movie, the James Bond movie, where the twin-engine high-wing airplane is chasing somebody on a ski slope, that is a Brit Norman Islander. Yeah, Probably the most famous Brit Norman Islander of all time. Twin-engine high-wing, kind of like a, a rectangular body, rectangular fuselage. 
Just Google it, say. everybody. Yeah. That nice. would that would work too. Um, but anyway, that I didn't. I had no idea that that had a different landing weight than a takeoff weight. I don't remember what the numbers are, but I know it's definitely lower. Like it's a fair amount lower, if I remember. It's several hundred. I mean, it's five hundred pounds less. I think. Hmm. I think I've got the manual actually still in the in the other room here in my house. I'll have to look it up if we take a break. I, I'll find it. But yeah, you're right. It is differently. It's it's slightly different. I don't remember ever looking at it. <laughs> oh no, yeah, you yeah, you couldn't. You couldn't definitely wouldn't you'd never take off. Um yeah. Part B, yeah. part bravo. We're getting more into the meat of it. This is kind of from I glanced through this before we started recording and having never utilized this reg, thought this was the most meaty part of it. Um except as provided in parts CDE or F of this section, no person operating a turbine engine powered large transport category airplane may take off that airplane unless its weight on arrival, allowing for normal consumption of fuel and oil in flight in accordance with the landing distance in the AFM, airplane flight manual, for the elevation of the destination airport and the wind conditions expected there at the time of landing would allow a full-stop landing at the intended destination airport within 60% of the effective length of each runway described below from a point 50 feet above the intersection of the obstruction clearance plane and the runway for the purpose of determining the allowable landing weight at the destination airport. The following is assumed, and there's two short ones I'll knock out real quick before we go into it. Uh, one, the airplane has landed on the most favorable runway and in the most favorable direction in still air. Or two, the airplane is landed on the most suitable runway considering the probable wind velocity and direction and the ground handling characteristics of the airplane and considering other considerations or conditions such as landing aids and terrain. I promise that's the, I think that's the biggest part of this reg we've now gone through. What does that even mean? Yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so basically what that means is, um, as opposed to part 91, where if you can take off as long as you can determine that you can land within the available landing distance of the runway at your destination. So if you're taking off an aircraft, let's call it even a jet aircraft that you may use under part 135. If you determine that it's going to take you 3,500 feet to, of landing distance to land that aircraft and stop it, uh, pre-flight planning-wise, you can then go ahead and launch for that airport and land on that runway. Under Part 135, what Rob just described means that you can't take off from your departure airport unless the available runway at your destination airport um, is such that the landing distance available is where you can actually land in 60% of whatever the landing distance available is. So if you're, let's say, let's say you calculate your landing distance based on however you calculate that, and you can land and stop the aircraft in 3000 feet, that 3000 feet can only be 60% of whatever that landing distance available is. So let's just call it the runway length. So what would that be a 5,000 foot runway? I guess if my math's right there. Yeah, ish. Yeah, ish. Yeah, 5,000 feet. So, yeah. So, if you're going to, if you can only, your landing distance calculated can only be 60% of what the distance available is. So, that means now under part 135, I have to have 5,000 feet of runway or landing distance available if my landing distance is calculated as 3,000 feet. So, what it's doing is adding in. Is that only one on 135? 
135 and 91K, which okay. 91K is a different story, but it's very similar to 135. That's, in essence, an owner who's flying an airplane instead of somebody who's chartering one. So not an owner of an airplane like you and I own an airplane and we're going to fly it, which would be part 91, but like a, a NetJets owner or a FlexJet owner. Uh, that's 91K, so the rules are similar. Okay. So I want to interject here. Part 90, we've dropped part 91 here. Um, if you don't know, part 91 is basically the rules. If you have a Cessna or a Piper and you're flying around for fun, you are flying under part 91. That's the recreational. Um, it has some commercial ops in it. 135 is um, strictly... Commer- like some commercial operators you're fl- if you're flying part 35 you are flying for somebody professionally in some professional capacity or you own a 135 certificate that you're flying under for yourself um is the what i wanted to interject here in case somebody is losing track we keep dropping the 90 91 and 135 lingo left and right here yeah, let me re-sum that up real quick, edit it how you want. 91 general operating rules, that is that most of those rules still apply to pretty much everybody, no matter whether you're flying commercially or not. A lot of that still bleeds through to 135 and 121. Some of the general stuff, it's just general operating rules. 135 is, is a commercial operation, so you are carrying passengers or property for hire, but it's on demand versus most people think of commercial as just an airline or something like that. That is scheduled. So the difference between airlines and 135 we keep referencing is it's on demand versus an airline, which is part 121, that's scheduled. I think that is uh, obviously there's we can regurgitate different ways to say it, but that's that's another way to, to think about it. 91 is general operating rules, 135 is on demand, commercial air carrier, 121 is scheduled air carrier. Something that is, like that. That is a beautiful summary. And then, so one thing I just wanted to, to kind of Jack's point here, um, with the with that part B, um, part ninety one. I just want to say this another way, like Jack did, because I think I think somebody asked a question and then it kind of got glossed over. Part ninety one. If your takeoff, if you can take off, and then your numbers say, okay, I'm going to subtract my fuel burn. That's my weight. Blah blah blah. These are the conditions. If it says I can land in 3,000 feet, and you have 3,000 feet of runway, you're good to launch. And that's not the same as 135 or 121, which is scheduled air carriers. So there's a parallel reg in part 121, which is scheduled, which I know we're not covering that right now. So this is a common theme if you're going on through the ratings and you're going to go get more certificates and you want to make it a career, whether you go 135 or you go 121, you're going to experience the same type of limitation. It's still you need to be for dispatch purposes. You know, once you're in the air, all bets are off, right, Jack? Yeah, correct. Exactly. This is a pre-flight planning number right here. So once we get in the air, or so that's yeah, it's pre-flight planning for both 121 and 135. You need to be able to stop within that 60% of the effective runway of runway pavement within 20 60% of that piece of pavement, basically. And once you're in the air, though, it reverts back to, I don't, maybe I'm not right, Jack, correct me here, or I'm asking you, I guess. Once you're in the air, you go back to almost like a 91. If you have your land, if the, the FMS or whatever spits back, hey, you need 3,000 feet, and you have 3,000 feet of runway, you're good, right? 
You are absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Once you're in the air, the, the, you're, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Once you're in the air, the, everything reverts back essentially to the same rule. So the part 91 that we described regs, which say that if you have 3000 feet of pavement available or landing distance available, because those can be slightly different at times, we don't necessarily have to go into that right now, but yeah, um, yeah, as long as you can land and stop on that in that landing distance available, once you're airborne, whether you're part 135 or 91, it's exactly the same. Um, Some companies are 121 exactly is, is the same thing. Uh, some companies will add in some safety margin to that. That may be a topic for a different discussion, but, um, you know, and and the reason that they, that some companies will add in an additional, uh, safety factor, factor either. Yeah. So I know that uh, there are some, you know, uh, fractional operators that will add in a 15% safety factor because the FA sort of recommends that, but they don't require it. Um, so yeah, some uh, will do 25%. But essentially, yeah, the reason that they do that is because, you know, once you're airborne after the pre-flight planning that we've described with the 60% requirements, um, they say, okay, now you're airborne, you have to land the aircraft somewhere. If we're going to, let's say, land on a a runway that may be wet or contaminated by compact snow or something else, which is going to be in part C of the reg that Rob will read, um, uh, or maybe it's not, that may be the 80% rule, whatever it is. But if you're going to land in a certain distance or on a runway that may be wet or contaminated, we say, okay, if the manufacturer calculates that you need 3,600 feet to land that aircraft, we want to put a little padding on that, right? So if you only have 3,600 feet available, well, what happens if you're going a little bit too fast or the winds are doing whatever else? Yeah. Um, but yeah, circling back, you're absolutely right. Once you get in the air, as long as you can calculate to stop in the landing distance available uh, without any margin, you're technically abiding by the regulation yeah and this is something like kind of scott brings up or kind of maybe not maybe not brings up but this is kind of more of scott's corner i try to talk more about following the rules you know i have a career to protect or whatever and it kind of his deal is i know this airplane can do this so why don't why can't i i don't mean to talk for you scott but I'm I'm not well, saying this as, as eloquently as I mean to, but there's a difference between like what the FAA says, the manufacturer says it can do, and then there's the real world, which is what you just hit upon, Jack. You yeah, the the manufacturer said, okay, three thousand is is you can land this thing in three thousand, but I'm you know, ref in fifteen, you know, or all these you know, all these things. It's real world. I'm not gonna pay that much attention to be right on ref. That's way too much work. So I'm yeah. ref in fifteen you know, or whatever it is. And Scott, so for like GA people. Right. For GA, I would assume it's just, it's up to you, right? Yeah. It's part 91. I mean, you want to, you, I mean, obviously in a 150 or 172, you have such generous margins almost anywhere you go. If you have 35 feet of 3,500 feet of runway, you're not even running numbers. Who cares? Oh no. Yeah. You're not even think about it. Yeah. But when we're talking transport category, the margins are much smaller because you know, you're talking landing distances of 4,000, 4,800 feet. And that's mind boggling. Now, can you get it down and stop? Yeah. You can drag it in, touch it on a threshold, just like landing at middle bass or something like that. You can do all those things in transport category, you know, jet, but that's not what we're supposed to do. You know, I, I was going in somewhere, it was a 4,200-foot strip, and, you know, I'm running numbers, and the, the temperature need to be just right, the weight need to be just right, the wind need to be just right, everything. So I'm like, 
and it, we were right on it. And, uh, and I'm still saying we need like 4,180 feet. We have 4,200 feet. And the, if the numbers say you can do it, the numbers say you can do it. The airplane can do it. So then it's kind of reverts. You're the backstop as the pilot. You need to be on speed, configured on glide path. And that's the 50-foot threshold crossing height that you referenced that we can talk about. But I come in, and I don't flare at all. I basically just slammed it in and got on the brakes really, really hard and used half of the runway. You can do all those yeah. things. You can under, you can over, I don't want you can make the airplane overperform by flying it differently, but that is taking some of the standard operating procedures and turning them out the window. Yeah, that's definitely true. And, you know, there are times too, where, you know, if you look at the way that uh, landing distance data is calculated and, you know, as of now with the 60% rules, uh, flat we're talking about planning to go to a dry runway yeah but if you're even looking at like an actual distance uh when you're in the air when that 60 percent rule goes away um manufacturers many of them will only flight test dry numbers they won't yeah. even flight test wet numbers right let right. alone slush compact no yeah contaminated exactly so um those are all based on equations and like lee said um you may you may find a number within your aircraft flight manual that says that it's going to take 5,400 feet to stop the aircraft with compact snow on the runway. Well, that's not based on a test pilot landing with some sort of compact snow on the runway. That's based on a bunch of engineers with equations, you know, with coefficients of lift or coefficients of drag when the wheels hit and all kinds of stuff. That's their guess as to what the aircraft is going to take to stop with a bunch of safety margins in. Um, but you may actually land that aircraft on compact snow and stop in 3,800 feet when the book said it took 5,200. Right. A, um, a pilot, right. an experienced pilot probably would have a better idea of what that aircraft's going to do than whatever the engineer in the, the book said it's going to do, I would assume. I mean, I'm going with 5,200 if that's what the book said. Well, I know, I'm going I with 5,200 as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, but you're yeah, right, but, Scott. But if you've been flying for, if you've been flying the same airplane for 10 years and you've been flying on and off of, snow covered runways and shit like that. Sorry. You know, no, no. I mean, you, you know, if that airplane's going to stop on that runway or not, you know? Yeah. You, so can I grab this Jack real quick? Yeah, go, yeah, go for it, man. So this is the only thing I agree with you, Scott. And I'm sure Jack will too. I'll let him get in on this, but if anything goes wrong, anything not even associated with the fact that there's compact snow on, on there and you somehow go off the side of the runway or anything happens, What's the FAA going to say? Well, the well, manual yeah. says 5,200 feet. Well, yeah. yeah. No, 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 no. no. Yeah. If anything goes wrong, you clip, you you landed successfully, you turned off the taxiway, and you clip the tail on a 152 and a tie down. The FAA is going to say, what are you doing? Why did you land? So said you need 5,200 feet. There's only 4,600 feet here. Look into that. I'm not – why would I risk that well, is, I my, is my point. I just remember I used to plow snow at an airport, and – it was really windy one day and like I was plowing snow and like the, the runway is like covered in snow still. Like I wasn't even done plowing it yet. And a King air landed and it's like, God, I would not want to land that right here. But I was like, well, they must know what they're doing because they've done it enough before. But yeah, you know what? I mean, and were they, they, were they good or do you think that they weren't good? Was it, was it one of the person. gods flying it? Was it one of the Northern Ohio pilot gods or was it I just don't, a I don't remember. I don't remember who was flying it. I just remember I pulled, I was plowing and I 
saw it coming in, so I pulled off the runway and watched him land. And I was, it was really windy, and the runway was still like mostly covered in snow. And I just remember thinking, like, that's not what I would want to do right now. <laughs> Kinger's got some pretty short numbers, so it's, they should have the numbers to do it. A Kinger may in a short runway like that. Yeah, but I don't. Yeah, know. Yeah, just, just to go along with this. just watching them do it made me uncomfortable. Like. Yeah, that runway is pretty slick because I was just out there plowing it, so I know it's pretty slick. Sure, and, it, and you know, was, to your point, it was windy. <laughs> take that to the yeah, sure. So you know, take that to the extreme, right? So of a you know of a very regulated, say, Part One Twenty One carrier, which we talked about, which the regulations are similar to One Thirty Five, which is the topic of this discussion. But if you go to LaGuardia in the winter time, and the weather is uh, really close to minimums for, uh, let's say an instrument approach. And you're going to be landing on a contaminated runway. Um, you watch the Delta aircraft come in there one after another, every single one of them has numbers and those runways aren't extraordinarily long for say an MD 80 to land on. Um, they all have the numbers to do what they're doing. It would be scary to watch for somebody, you know, who didn't, you know, have a lot of experience with the operation. There could be blowing snow there's snow on the runway. The braking action may not be all that good yet. One after another Delta is landing perfectly legally. And, um, you know, I, I guess to go along with what Lee said, you have the numbers you land. Um, your landing numbers are based on being at a certain speed, which we call VREF. It's like a reference speed at 50 feet over the threshold. And there's not a lot of margin because we're dealing with being, you know, with very tight numbers at certain runways. So if you're say 10 knots or 11 knots over that speed, you don't even attempt to land. You'll go around. So if we're, say, if our stabilized approach criteria, which is what we call it, if we're, say, 500 feet over the ground and the book says you can be at that point, that reference speed plus 10 knots and you're that reference speed plus 11 knots, you're not going to do it. You're going to go around and we'll try again. So, you know, everything is based on the fact that you have the numbers that you have to land and that you're going to be doing the things that you need to do to be able to make sure that those numbers are what's actually going to happen when you land, regardless of the pilot experience or what you know about the aircraft or anything like that. So back to Scott's point, and then Lee jumped in on Scott's going by the, if you got a ton of time in a plane, you gain the feel of the airplane and you'll know what it'll do, which I don't think any of us disagree with kind of the, the mindset of that. But Lee, you you jumped in and said, "No, you don't do that. No, you don't do that." Lee, you you would you fly the Lear forty you do at work differently than if you had a carbon cub. Like when you are flying a Lear forty with owners in the back, that you, it's your job to do it. You follow those book, like you don't mess around. If it, the book says that, the engineer said that. Even if you have a hunch you could do it, get that in there, you still are not going to do it. Where if you'd like a carbon cub or like a small aviation plane that's like your own and you're not having passengers for hire and that I feel like you more be in the Scott boat of just in some situations. Am I wrong? No, I mean, a hundred, I mean, you know, I've kind of gotten really conservative, um, you know, you know, so that I started flying like professionally, but I, I think 
my, my, I think my concept would be my, my mental processes would be if it was in a small GA airplane, a 172 or an Archer, ideally. Um, if, if, if I think I can do it, I would, I would attempt, I would probably do it. I would attempt to do it. You know, um, I'm sure you reasonable. flew off, I'm that? sure you flew single engine pipers off of extremely snowy, icy conditions before. I mean, in, on short runways, you. Yes, but also you, yeah, you knew what so, it could do and what it couldn't do. I mean, a hundred percent. Yes, that is kind of back to your statement of you fly something enough times, not even so many hours or years, but a, a number of of takeoffs and landings in an airplane, you get in tune with it. Look at what these guys can do with a Super Cub. Um, that if you reference a a Piper, you know, uh, proof flight manual f- for the airplane, it won't even say that it can do. Look what yeah. these guys can do. Now, granted, all those numbers for gross weight. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. They they are in. They can fly the airplane better than the Piper test pilot could. And that makes sense. The Piper test pilot. How many hours did he have in it? If he had a thousand in it, that'd probably impress me. These guys have twenty, thirty thousand hours in one in in a Super Cub, and so they are wearing it. I mean, they are on the razor's edge. They know every idiosyncrasy and every everything about that airplane. And, you know, they've done, you know, hundreds of thousands of landings, probably. They're in tune with it, as in tune as you can be. I would err towards, obviously, not to that, that, that level. I would never be, but um, I would be more apt to, to push it a little bit with my reasonable mental, you know, margins um, in, in a GA-type airplane. But when I feel like the flip gets switched, when I put the uniform on, the flip gets switched. There is to me the switch gets perception. flipped. You set it backwards. The flip gets switched. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> Scott points out. I made up a word the other day, and then Scott called me on it. This is ridiculous, Scott. You need to have a have the, a couple more show preps, and okay, get on the our flip level. gets. He said the flip <laughs> gets switched. I couldn't let that go. I just okay. right. well, well, I appreciate that. The switch gets I mean, flipped. Yeah, the, and there's. A, that, if you hadn't I'm said it completely backwards, I would have let it go. But. I'm getting back to the point, so you can drop this guy. Anyways, <laughs> um, when I put the uniform on, there's a perception that – I, I believe there's a perception from the, the clients that I am flying that they expect that I am going to do everything by the book and follow all the rules and be a professional aviator. And um, I guess kind of integrity tells me that that is exactly what I should do. Um, it's not always easy. It's not more often than not, it's hard. Um, and other, you know, there's, there's potentially pushback from company, other pilots that you're flying with and all the hazardous attitudes that we've learned from day one in flying school, you know, in flying school that you have to fight in all the external factors. Um, but yeah, I, I follow all the rules that the book doesn't say it can do it. I, I, I try to, you know, reasonably sift through all the things that would that give me those numbers and try to figure out, okay, what's realistic. And you, you have to be realistic because sometimes you can, you can make it give you numbers that'll tell you you can't ever take off ever, probably. But um, you got to be realistic and, and go, go by what the book says. I'm not, I have to assume that the engineers knew more than I do. It's a good engineers. Usually, no more than us. Yeah, what do you think, uh, Jack? Things. 
Yeah, I agree. I mean, it, you know, just flying smaller planes too. I mean, if we fly something small and and we know exactly what it's capable of, because we do. I mean, we've we've got experience with that kind of flying, and we make it perfectly safe. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think there's a certain you know when you get into the the you know regulations that govern how you operate with with people that don't know you and are paying for your service. Um, so a part 135 operator, like we're talking about a commercial operator, um, you've got to put some sort of a standard on it. And many times, you know, like a lot of this based on, you know, larger turbine powered jet aircraft, say, and it's not always jets, turboprops or anything like that. Um, they they have to set a high standard with a fair margin of error built in. Cause you know, many times we don't know where we're operating these aircraft in and out of. And like Lee knows, sometimes we're operating Learjets or Phenoms or Citation XLs or whatever uh, into pretty small airports. So, I mean, the regulation has to allow for a certain amount of margin for error. So, yeah, there's there's definitely a difference, I think, in attitude. Well, we always think about safety, whether we're flying a small airplane with our, you know, ourselves or you know our family on board or a jet. Uh, we always think about safety, but I think the mindset with most professionals flying larger aircraft tends to be more towards that, where you've got to draw the line somewhere, right? So even if we have, uh, take Santa Monica, Lee, have you ever been out there to Santa Monica? Lear probably doesn't have landing numbers for that, does it? I it's almost 30, went out there. It's like 4,000 4, feet or something, isn't it? It's 3,500. It used okay. to be a little okay. over 4,000. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so the Phenom will do it. Um, and with a dry runway, the Phenom will land and stop in 1,800 feet. And the book says it'll stop in 2,600, right? So that's right along the lines of what we were talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause I've done it, but, um, yeah, so a 3,500 foot runway. And it's interesting that a lot of people argue that at Santa Monica, um, if they had just shortened that runway by one foot, there'd be no jets flying in and out of there. So that just sort of speaks to how, how much by the numbers, one thirty part 135 operators go by, because many operators will say a 3,500 foot runway with a jet aircraft, that's as low as we're willing to go. Even if the book says that we can go less than that. Um, and if you say, okay, the company says 3,500 feet, that's as short as I can take this jet into. If a customer says there's a runway here, that's 3,499 feet. Sorry. You know, we're not doing it because if we take one foot, then. What role do insurance companies play in that too? Cause I, I assume insurance companies will only cover certain lengths for certain aircrafts. It's a good question. I'm not sure they, they may, I know that insurance, I know that the jet typically insurance companies will cover you as long as you're operating the jet as the manufacturer told you to operate the jet. So that means by the numbers that the engineers create for you. So as long as you're within those bounds, the insurance company should, should cover should it. Should cover it. Okay. Cause I remember, uh, yeah. uh, I think it was a citation seven came into a 3,500 foot runway that I worked at. And one of the other pilots there said, there's no way this insurance company covers them to come in here. But Interesting. I don't, I don't, I don't right. know if that's, I don't know if that's true or not. He could have just been. He didn't want to shit. do it. He could have just been talking yeah. shit, but. Uh, sure. I don't know. Interesting. I'm not sure. Who said this? I can beep it out if you want. Buffington. I was going to say. Yeah. Buffington. There's a blast from the past right there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I remember he, he was, Buffington was kind of, was kind of a little flustered by it. 
He's like, there's no way his insurance company is covering him to come in here. It's too short for that plane. I don't, Interesting. I don't know. Now the insurance companies should, yeah, they should cover as long as the manufacturer says you can do it, they should cover it. One thing yeah. insurance companies do dictate is how much pilot time the pilots have to have to fly it. Yeah. You know, especially to be a captain. I know some insurance companies, I a previous company I had worked for, if you didn't have 3000 hours total time and 500 hours of turbine, you couldn't be a captain. Whereas the FAA would have been like, oh yeah, fine, you're legal. But the insurance company's like, no, you're not sitting in the left seat. Are you kidding yeah. me? Right, right. Yeah, they got more skin in the game than the FAA does at that point. Yeah. They're insuring the airplane. Yeah, right. They don't want to pay for our mistake. No, <laughs> That's right. no. And speaking of legal, Lee, you, you started earlier, you're talking about for our runway length example of in part 91, let's do our example runway at 3,000 feet. Mm-hmm. Um, if the airplane says you can, if you do the math for the landing, you're calculating to do it with the, all the, the variables you do in your pre-flight planning. And it says it's, you're going to land in 3000 feet. If you have a 3000 foot runway, um, you said you're fine. I, I, I know it's not like I'm calling you on. I just want to clarify that might have been the way you'd word it. I know you think differently than this. It's fine. You meant legally it's fine. It's yes. maybe not the best idea to do, but under Part 91, when you're flying for fun by yourself, it is legal to do that landing. When you did the numbers, they say 3,000, and you have a 3,000-foot runway. Uh, but it's in a lot of situations, it'd probably be a very uh, bad idea, uh, depending on yeah. the aircraft and the situation. That sounds like it's right on the edge, and from a book performance numbers, like it is three thousand. I mean, that's ones and zeros, right? So, I mean, it's 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 black and white. We get it. Three thousand. It's three thousand. There's no margin for error, really. Well, I mean, I don't want to go the other way and be opposite of my normal kind of persona here, but I can. I know full well I probably have more control over the lane distance by my landing technique than I do by being right on V-ref. If I choose to not flare and do a good landing, I'm going to save myself 500 feet. But if I'm V-ref plus 10, or if I'm, I can be on ref and do a great landing and milk it out, I'm going to add all that runway back in. So if I just kind of flare enough to not do damage to the airplane, set down on the fixed distance, the thousand footers, fixed distance markers, whatever you want to call them, the two big white blocks on the runway on a precision or a instrument runway. I don't, I don't know if I, my landing technique probably does more dictating my total landing distance than anything. So if you have a Pappy system or a VASI, which are a lighting system to help you uh, land visually like on glide path for the runway and clear obstacles. If you have one of those and you're dot low, and that's part of your technique, and you brief that, and you do all these things, you can probably appreciably shorten your lane distance from what the book says. But that's part 91, you know? I mean, I, I mean, Jack, I'm, what do you think? I don't want to like sound like I'm a total idiot here, but I think if you could brief some of these things and let technique kind of air towards the short field, um, don't go nuts, obviously, you know, you can't go bush pilot, you know, a phenom or a citation or something, but you can definitely knock some, some of, some of that distance off what the book says. Yeah, you could. 
You definitely can. Are you talking about like your calculated landing distance? If you're talking about just like, like part raw 91. part 91. Yeah. Oh yeah. You def you definitely can. Yeah. You know, and it, um, yeah, if you, if you determine that, um, it, it, like, let's say you're up in the air, I just put a scenario behind that Lee. So we were up in the air and we have to put down because we have a fire or something like that. Like think of one scenario where like we need to set down on whatever's underneath us and we've got a 3000 foot runway and we do a calculation and we say that the book says we're going to take 2,987 feet. We're like, all right, we can probably land and stop that airplane faster. It's safer here to duck under. So like you mentioned a Pappy, right? We're going to follow the, the Pappy system down. So we're going to stay right on the glide path. Yeah. You bet, man. We're not, we're not crossing the fence at 50 feet and ref. We're going to be 10 under ref because we know we still have a margin over our stall speed. And if there's nothing, the trees or anything that's built up at the end of the runway, we're going to brief that. And we're going to put this thing down on the numbers, probably relatively briskly. <laughs> and we're going to get on the brakes and we're going to stop that damn thing in 1600 feet, right? Because we're going to hit the brakes really hard. So yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can definitely do things technique wise if you have to. And that's part nine. So part 91, we know that we can obviously flying part 135 is the same pilot flying the same airplane. So can it be done 135, 121? Yeah, hell yeah. It's all technique. You know you can chop some of these some of the percentage of this of these numbers off. But if you're in an emergency, you know, obviously do what you gotta do. But you know, the book, that's what's that's what's gonna save your job, I guess. I mean, you need to save lives first, but save your job is is uh, pretty high up there on my priority list too. So yeah. Right. Your pilot's license is important for sure. And yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing. I was just going to say, you know, for the people that are out there, you know, doing people that uh, are listening, maybe that fly light twins or light singles or something like that, go back to your private pilot training when you did shorts and softs, you're doing a short field landing and you're flying at this really slow final approach speed. Remember back to um, how much margin was even in between say, a short field landing speed of 60 knots in a Cessna 172 versus the stall speed. So a stall speed in a 172 with the flaps out is what, like 42 knots or something. So, you know, when you're flying even these really slow speeds, you're not close to stall. Right. No. That's another thing. I mean, you'll yeah. hear that stall warning before you even get it close to stall anyway, as long as it's yeah. functioning properly. Depending on the airplane. Well, as long as Depending it's functioning on the airplane, properly, I guess. Even in a jet, you know, in a 150, like the 150, it starts making a lot of noise long before that actually stalls. Yeah, yeah, and even in a in a jet, the ref speed that we're no, go ahead. Oh, sorry, I cut you off. Even in a jet, like a ref speed that we're talking about, is you know some pilots get nervous if they get slower than ref, which you shouldn't be slower than ref if you want to land based on your numbers. But there's still a margin in between that speed, which is slow. But if you're 10 knots below that, for whatever reason, it's not as if you're going to stall the aircraft either. You know, and, and every time, and that's the thing, you know, like I've, I've, it's haven't, it hasn't really come up, but it's talked about, you know what I mean? Oh, you're getting too slow. You're like two, you're ref plus two. And people are like, you're getting too slow. You know what I mean? Or like check airspeed or whatever. But it's like when we go demonstrate stalls in a simulator, it's like, are you kidding me? This thing doesn't yeah. stall to like a hundred knots. Right. And I'm doing, yeah. you know, 132 and you're saying something to me. It's like, yeah, 
we're ref minus 21 and we're not at the shaker yet. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. The shaker should be, that's why I would just tell first officers don't, don't, uh, don't hit the shaker and don't hit the flap over speed. I don't care anywhere in between. I don't care because I believe yeah, it's technique that is going to dictate more than anything, you know, yeah. what, what, the, what you the landing distance is. Yeah, for sure. And so back to the, so the 60% discussion that we're talking about being able to stop the aircraft within 60% of the available landing distance, you know, there are a lot of, of pilots of smaller jets that get nervous when the speed gets too low. So they would rather be say ref plus 20, which your landing distance is calculated based on your ref speed, which in a small jet might be a phenom 105 to 110. The Lear's probably a little faster, but you know, 105 many, is the ref speed. Yeah, and the phenom in an average landing weight ref can be 105. Yeah, 105 to 110. Sometimes a little faster if we're heavy. Okay, all right. Okay. What are you doing with 118, 120? Yeah, I mean, yeah, one 122. Yeah, one yeah one yeah 119 to 122 ish is ref. Yeah. Yeah, you guys are quick. What is ref speed? In case someone doesn't know. So ref speed is it's um so you v speed so going back to like vx and vy like best angle of climb and best rate of climb for you you guys that are flying smaller aircraft. Uh, so you've got your V speeds, which are your, you know, different speeds that we use in, in aviation. V ref is V reference. So that's a speed that we attempt to um, be at when we land, when we cross uh, a 50 foot height over the runway threshold. So it's what all your landing numbers are predicated on. And so um, when we're flying jets, because typically we'll have a longer landing distance than a smaller aircraft, um, we'll decide whether or not we're stabilized to land based on where we're at in reference to that speed. So if your ref speed is say like in my slower jet aircraft, 105 knots, um, I'm stabilized in my little jet. If I'm 105 knots to 115 knots, so we'll give ourselves V ref to V ref plus 10. Uh, if I'm faster than V ref plus 10 at a certain point on the approach, then, uh, you typically it's 500 feet off the runway or 500 feet above minimums on an approach for you guys who are instrument rated, then we would determine that I'm unstabilized unless we've briefed that. So, you know, many pilots of smaller aircraft flying into larger runways are more comfortable with say V ref plus 20. Cause they're like, I've got all this extra speed. If something happens and I lose wind gusts or something like that, I'm safe and I'm not going to stall. Um, they're more comfortable with that versus the perspective of, Say if somebody was flying, um, you know, triple sevens in American their entire career, and then they went into smaller jets. Well, those guys, for those guys, the danger is if they're going VREF plus 20, right? Because their aircraft is so heavy and so large, they're always taking up all the runway they're allow allowed to based on the regulation. So for those guys, if they're REF, they're like, this is great. Uh, for a smaller jet pilot, if they're REF, they're going, no, 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 I'm way too slow. So normally there's about, I don't know, what would you say, Lee? at least 20 knots between your ref speed and your stall speed with the flaps oh, yeah. out. Oh, yeah. I mean, any anyway, maybe more. So what it actually is, it's it's one. So it's one point three times your stall speed is what your ref speed ends up being. OK. So I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what the math ends up being. So like if we had a hundred knot ref speed, that's 30 percent over our stall speed. Yeah. So does that mean our stall speed 70? I don't know. Well, I don't know what that means. I think I know ref is it's 0.6 AOA and now we're kind of getting into the weeds, but it's, yeah. it's 60 per it's 60% of the lift capability of the wing. 
Um, so however you end up doing that math, I don't know if it's a certain necessarily certain multiple above stall speed, but, um, well, it's 1.3 VSO, right? That's what I thought. 1.3 VSO is what ref is supposed to be. So that's 30% over your stall yeah. speed. Yes, you're right. So if your stall speed is hundred knots, your ref would be 130. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or 70 and 130. I mean, it's going to come out pretty close to that. So yeah, yeah I mean, there's that's a fair ref. Huge, huge yeah. margin, really. 30% margin. That's Sounds good to me. I mean, I'm not going to freak out about it. And then we have our bat, our safety backstops, the stick shaker, stick pusher, all those things to keep us out of trouble. And that's not accounting for any just airmanship, you know, seat of your pants type stuff, which is not as easy as people think in a larger aircraft. That A lot of the seat of the pants, I think, kind of goes out the window when, yeah. you're, when you're talking about a bigger airplane like that. The swept wing on top of it, you know, that does not help. Yeah, you can't feel it. You can't feel a jet like you can a you know a Piper Cub or something like that. Yeah, you're you know, not you're, wearing you're not wearing it like you are a, a Cub, right? No, exactly. Ever, no matter how many. And the larger aircraft that you get into, like you look at a like an airliner or something like that, like you know the person with their hands on the throttle doesn't have the hands on the throttle right next to them. They're like reaching as far as their arm will go to to grab the throttle. All the controls are hydraulically boosted. I mean, there's no feel. The only way to operate those things is by numbers, right? So, quick right. reaction either i mean by the time you react if you, something's going wrong well and that's where you know he brings up you know flying you know ref and tan ref and whatever and you know you're setting a power setting because and this is a question i wanted to bring up or at least bring up into the equation so we, we talked about you know we want to land part 135 within the 60 percent of or plan we need to plan to land within 60 percent once you're in the air, it's kind of as long as you have enough pavement, you're good to go. You're good to land there. And then we started talking about, you know, the different uh, conditions required and blah, blah, blah. So when you start talking about, you know, wind gusts and pilot technique and see your pants flying, we're all adding and padding these numbers a little bit. We, we are flying faster than ref. The book, you know, is like you said, predicated on flying ref. How many people are doing that? I know I'm not. I'm never, I would say less than 10% of the time I a ref. Yeah, you cross a ref in 10 anyway, probably, right? Uh, at least. I'm hard, I'm hardly looking at that point. I set my fuel flow and I let the different, you know, variations. I, I set my fuel flow and I get in the ballpark and I uh buy the glide slope and localizer. After that, yeah. As long as it doesn't hit the, you know, the clacker, you know, the height, the flap, you know, the flap over speed, um, <laughs> you're good to go. Yeah, that's how I feel about it. It's not shaker. It's not flap over speed. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm good. And then I'm going to let technique do the rest of it. And I don't know necessarily because I obviously haven't gotten out to measure, but I, and I'm cognizant if it's if it's tight, I'm going to fly differently. When I have 9,000 feet and I need 3,000 feet, I'm not going to, you know, that's a different story, right? I mean, that's yeah. what, um, one thing, um, when you start talking about, you know, transient conditions or transitory conditions, whatever they say, with wind shear, gust factor, all that stuff, how, so we're trying, we have to land, to plan to land within the 60%. We're in the air now. We can kind of just say, as long as we have enough pavement, we're good. So it says 3,000 feet is what we need to land. 
we have 3,000 feet, so we're good once we're in the air. Like, let's say you switch runways. Now you got to use the short runway, for an example or something. Sure. You're in the air. The numbers do work, but you have gusts. You have low-level wind shear reported. So talk to me. Can you walk me through what you're thinking about gust factor? Because we know that adds distance to our land, our landing distance, but everything is predicated on ref. But now we're adding gust factor. But how how do we feel about landing on that three thousand foot pavement, knowing I'm faster than a ref and all those things? Am I factoring that in? And so that says that runway is not is not a good option for me. What do you what do you think? Yeah, that's where I would I would go back to um, you know the FAA recommended fifteen percent safety margin. Um, and that, that would be in good conditions. So even if we didn't have gusty winds or anything like that, even though the regulation says that I can land on that runway, if I calculate 3000 feet of landing distance is what I'm going to take. And there's 3000 feet available. I'm still not going to land on that runway unless I absolutely have to, um, I either something forcing me down like a fire. I mean, there's not very many situations that would force me to that. Um, I'm going to be going with at least fit a 15% safety margin. If there's gusty winds, I'm probably going to go with a little bit more than that. Although um, a lot of companies have addressed that. So I know of a couple of large fractional companies that have determined that a final approach speed, um, maybe you would fly at say ref plus 10. If you have gusty winds, say, you know, winds, I let's just call it right down the runway, 10 gusting to 20. So you would actually add half your gust factor to your final approach speed. So um, you could consider a stabilized approach instead of, you know, ref to ref plus 10 to ref plus 15, because you're adding half the gust factor, which is 10 gusting to 20. Your gust factor is 10 knots. I'm going to add five, five knots to that. Now, one caveat with that is that we still expect you to cross the fence, we say. So we still expect you to cross 50 feet over the runway at ref. So you're adding that speed to your final approach speed or that gust factor to your final approach speed, but you're not actually crossing the fence with it if that makes sense yeah so no I'm myself, yeah i'm giving myself a safety margin on final of half the gust factor but if i cross the fence at ref then my landing distance theoretically should be the same but being like you as a pilot doing this stuff real world if i have winds that are 10 gusting to 30 um you know technically that's 20 knots i could add 10 knots to my final approach speed i'm probably going to be crossing the fence faster than ref right. because you know, so yeah, so I may take that 10% or 15% safety factor and say, I want more than that. And if I can't get it, I'm going to go someplace else. Right, right, right. So you, you're talking about, you know, coming across the fence. And so I, I just think about what's realistic. Like I am more concentrated on the landing at that point, you know, instead of getting it going from ref plus 15 so the other day I'm going and actually there was a flexion airplane that actually went to where'd they go? We're going into Naples. Maybe they went to Fort Myers or something because it was 13 gusting to 40. Who? Wow. Don't one two zero at 13 gusting to 40 or something like that. Rule number Pretty one. Much right down the runway. What's that? Rule number one. Don't get your plane out of the hangar. We're already in the air. It was not forecasted. I mean, there's storms in the vicinity and all uh, that stuff. We knew it wasn't going to be great. What kind of? Well, uh, I guess if you're in a serious, you pull the chute. Obviously, that's the number one rule. If you're 
if you're not in a Cirrus, then you try to fly. If you have enough fuel, you fly somewhere where there's not so much wind. And if, if you're not, then you just probably just put it in a field somewhere. I hope Scott gets a Cirrus someday. Just because <laughs> you're going to be the most person. There's never going to be someone who pulls the Cirrus chute more than you if you fly Cirrus yeah. someday, Scott. Yeah, you're probably better off to to not pull that chute if you ever get a Cirrus. Yeah. It's not a good idea. Anything, anything goes wrong. What does wrong it cost? What, do you know what it costs? We're getting off traffic now, but to, to no. put the plane back? I'm not sure what it costs to put that back, but when you if you pull that chute, you're totally out of control. So like, unless one of the wings fell off and I was flying one of those things, I would at least try to land it somewhat under control where I wanted to. What I mean, I would only pull that thing what if, if, it's, if I was okay. completely out of control. What if it's at night, though, and you lose all power? You have no lights and no power. You might as well pull a chute. Yeah, yeah if I don't know where I'm going to land, yeah, because at night you don't know. You can't tell the difference between like an open field and a forest. So right. at that point so in you, time, I may so pull the chute. In, uh, in the country, you know, it's pitch black, no lights, no power. You might as well pull a chute. Well, at night though, unless I mean, if I at night I would never be flying anywhere where I didn't have enough altitude to hit an airport in a single engine airplane. But that's just me. Really? Oh yeah, absolutely. I yep. can't say uh, that I've always followed I have that not advice. Followed that that's good advice. advice. Me either. I figured that out when I was about thirty-two or thirty-three years old. It took me a while. <laughs> <laughs> then I was like, yeah, maybe this is a good idea. But yeah, well, yeah, if I'm. <laughs> I don't know if you can follow that advice, though. I mean, no, not really. Which means you don't end up flying at night. Yeah, yeah, you, you really don't fly, fly at night. I don't want to go fly a single engine airplane at night. Well, I don't. No, I don't. See, my, there you go. Most of my night like flights to, are back and forth, or no, let's just say most of my night flights are flying back from Kelly's Island after work into Scott's place. Yeah, so uh, that's no, a very short distance. Single engine, no yeah. uh, runway lights. Definitely not able to glide to an airport at whatever altitude you climb out to because i'm sure you did not yeah climb out the entire time and then descend the rest of the time you could sir you could like circle up that's what we do coming off of Peely. yeah so when i got the the family we circle we circle the airport until we're up to altitude to go straight we don't do any of that stuff we used to do take off you're turning at 200 feet and heading towards the or the other airport we don't do that it just seems when ridiculous I'm the family <laughs> yeah well, i mean I yeah understand. but it's really ridiculous when you're wet well i understand but i just never nobody i know how to i've swim. ever flown with ever <laughs> said none of my instructors was ever like yeah maintain gliding distance to an airport at night i've never heard that before but somebody who's never had an engine failure then or never really seriously thought about the implications of having one then. That's the that's right. the difference. Well no, I'm I mean, I'm not I, saying I it's a, sh- I'm not yeah. saying it's a bad idea. I'm just saying nobody I've ever none of my instructors have ever been like, you should do this. Like I flew with my instructors on nighttime cross countries when there was no way we were making it to an airport. I, I used to do it all the time. Yeah. Go ahead. What, I remember. I remember my one oh. instructor said, "If you if you uh, have an engine failure at night and you're coming in, and you don't like what you see, just shut the lights off because that's all you can do." I heard the same thing. I I used to fly night cross countries with students when I was a CFI at Bowling Green, and we used to fly it, you know, 
2,000 feet going west and 3,000 feet going east for, you know, 150 miles in a Cessna 152. And I never gave it a second thought. And we used to talk about engine failures and like, well, you know, you want to go for a dark spot because you know that right. yeah. there are no there's, buildings there's there, there, but there's yeah. within the category of no buildings, there's also like other stuff like trees, trees and, and fields, yeah. like stuff yeah. that'll kill you and stuff that won't. But yeah, I used to fly, I mean, I used to fly 172s at night with students down to minimums at Toledo, like shooting ILSs. And I thought it was good training, which it probably was. But yeah, I mean, the fact of the matter is if you lose an engine at night, your chances of getting through that, if you don't know exactly what you're landing on, or I'm not going to take those odds. I'll just put it that way. Right. So, which yeah, I mean. Unless I know exactly what's there or like a local flight in a, in a traffic pattern, that's maybe different, but I'm also going to fly a high pattern Well, and I'm going to plan on a power off. Right, but you're still going to yes. be at, at some point in the, in the pattern on takeoff, you're going to be at a point where if the engine fails, you, you're not going to be able to turn around and get to the airport and you're not going to be able to see where you're going to land either. So there's, there's always going to be a time period where you're, where you're screwed. But you can do, say like, if, but, you can minimize it. No, go I mean, you can, go ahead, you can minimize it, but there's always, no matter what, if you're taking off at night, there's going to be a, a short amount of time. Some where risk. You, yeah. yeah. Every takeoff is a risk. And that's our, that is our, almost our primary job is well, I remember mitigating these risks when, that arise. When I was a, but a, it'll a, always come back to, are you taking off from the right airport? If well, you are taking off, Scott, for example, taking off from your airport with 2,500 feet or whatever, and an engine fails, that may be a dangerous takeoff. Where if you were to do the exact same thing at Port Clinton with another with double the amount of runway, that could be a safe takeoff at night. You can yeah. experience that. Well, engine I guess it depends on where, where and it still land. Well, 100%, 100%. And if it fails as I'm crossing risks. the other end of the runway, I'm, I'm not going to make it back to the runway probably. And I would not say that's necessarily true. Well, at some point along the runway, say it fails where I'm at 4,000 feet down the runway, am I going to be able to turn that plane around and land on the runway? Well, probably how not. high are you? How high are you? Well, I don't know. They, I mean, they call that like that impossible turn or whatever. Yeah. But – Again, familiarity with your aircraft and its handling and its performance capabilities will probably go a long way towards saving your life. But yeah, it's dangerous. And so, I mean, we've changed this pretty much from a nighttime conversation to an anytime conversation with, with the topic you're bringing up. That same situation can happen during the day. You might be able to see an adequate spot off to the side of the runway in the day is maybe the difference. Well, yeah. I mean, if it happens during the day and I can see an open field, I'm yes. not going to try to turn it around because I don't want to stall it out and spin into the ground. But at well, night time... definitely don't stall it out. Well, definitely don't do that. Well, no, but a lot of... From what I hear, a lot of pilots who have an engine failure shortly after takeoff have an issue trying to turn around and get back into the airport. I feel like that's, I've heard that's a yeah. a common failure. Yes. Is where they try to turn too tight. They panic, get the aircraft too slow, too tight of a turn. They stall it, crash. They have no power. And the worst part is those, there's a lot of situations that make it even worse where they could have had a field or something in right. front of them. Out, of, out of front of them. Put it down in. 
if it's daylight, I feel like unless you're, I mean, most airports where we are in the daytime taking off, you're probably going to find a clearing where you can stick that thing in. It might not be the most graceful thing in the world, but you could probably put it somewhere. It's better than rolling upside down. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So Scott, I just want to clarify this. At night, night you're kind of screwed. What I'm saying. So are you saying, Scott, though, that maybe taking off at night out of a really short strip is a bad idea? Oh, yeah. It's a terrible idea. Okay. We I'm not saying I wouldn't do it. We used to do it all the time, but I'm just saying. You know. Well, there's things that we all used to do, but we've wised up. we got families now. We're more conservative. As, and we're, when, when I was a student pilot, landing was the scariest part. But now... <laughs> Now landing is like not scary at all. It doesn't bother me one bit, even if it's crosswind or whatever. It doesn't really scare me. But taking off is where you is the more critical part of the of the flight, if you ask me. Because you have an issue on takeoff, well, if you have a, a power failure on takeoff, you're more likely to die than if you have a power failure on landing. Probably. Yeah, I mean, generally speaking, I probably yeah. agree with that. And if you're in a single engine airplane, is- a single engine airplane, you most likely failure would be power failure. I would assume power failures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's not there's not much else to fail. Well, no, I mean, you could airplane. lose you could lose a control surface or something, or you. Uh, cable could break in th- in theory it doesn't happen often but you know it's possible and you'll wish you were in a serious you just pull the shoe right <laughs> but i'm i'm just saying like me for me i have more nervous more nerves taking off than i do landing but when i was a student it was the other way around i would say i have more nerves taking off than landing yeah but when you were a student was it yeah. the same way or no uh when I was a student, I didn't worry at all on takeoff. I just trusted the airplane. I don't know. As I got older, I was like, if this thing's going to fail, if it fails on landing, I can make that runway. If it fails on takeoff, I'm probably screwed. Depending no, on- I think I always had the, I have a much, the magnitude of, uh, is much higher, but I think I always had the same reservation on the takeoff versus the landing. Yeah. You know, like, let's say you've gotten through most of the takeoff and you're 100 feet. You got the nose up in the air. You've lost some of your, you know, your visual cues as to where the runway is underneath you and what's off to the sides and what are, you know, maybe good good plans if that engine were to fail at 100 feet above the ground, how much is left in front of you, all those things. So I, I think, and, and now definitely, I would well, more and concerned about You guys takeoff. fly more often than me, but like... I'll fly in the wintertime. The airplane performs great. It takes off right away. It gets off the ground. But, you know, I, I don't, sometimes I go months without flying. So let's say the last time I flew, it was 40 degrees out. And I didn't fly for a couple months. And now it's a nice day, but it's 80 in Ohio. You know, the weather swings back and forth pretty, pretty good sometimes. Yeah. You know, that plane is going to perform completely different. So it, in me, for my in my mind, for a, a, at least a split second or a few seconds anyway, 
I convinced myself that something's wrong with the airplane because it's not performing like it was the last time that I flew it. And I have to tell myself, no, it's not the aircraft. It's the conditions, you know? So, and that is something that you could maybe dispel. I'm, I'm, I understand. If I flew more often, it wouldn't be an issue, but I'm just saying for me, cause sometimes I'll go months without flying. Sometimes I'll fly every, every week for a couple of months in a row. If we get nice weather and I have time, but it's like, I don't, I don't have time. The weather's crap. It just doesn't well, happen. Think about this. Last week it was almost 80 degrees. This week it's 40 degrees. Right. So you exactly. Have those same within the no. period. So no, within, yeah, and, but you're saying that you took four months off. Well, you could no, have taken four days off. This well, yeah, week, and it would still yeah, have the same experience. Still, yeah, I remember because I flew a lot over the summer. Not a lot, but I, I flew a decent amount over the summer. It was hot, so the airplane didn't perform mm-hmm. very well. It's summertime. It, it took a lot more runway to get off, and I just got used to that. And then, I don't know, it was a few weeks ago when it was it was cold out. You know, it was like 30, 40 degrees out. That's probably in the forties, I guess. And it jumped right off the runway and it, it almost scared me for a few seconds. I was like, what is going on here? And then I'm like, okay, just, just the condition, you know, it's the, just the, the environment that I'm flying in, you know, but for somebody that flies all the time, that might not, it might sound like a silly thing to even talk about because they're used to it. But for somebody who doesn't fly that often, it's, it can get cut, catch you off guard yeah. sometimes. I what can I totally say, see that. Uh, oh, godly. Well, I was just going to say, and that, that is a, I'm not telling you to go run numbers, but if you were to go run numbers and it's not realistic, you know, and especially in a 150, if you were to go run numbers before your flight, it would tell you all that information before you ever got to the plane. Well, I know, but I just and know you'd be like, like, oh if, man, I'm going to take off in 500 feet versus 1500 feet. If I'm by myself, if I'm by myself out of here, which most of the time I fly by myself, if I'm by myself and I have half tank of fuel, I don't really pay much attention to it because even if it's 90 degrees and horrible conditions are flying, I'm still going to make it off the runway. Now you don't need yeah. If it's ninety, I, yeah, we're expecting more than that though. If it's ninety we're degrees, we're expecting more than you just lift off. Well, I know, yeah. but if it's, it's ninety best. degrees and I have full fuel and somebody wants to go with me, I'm probably going to tell them no. Run the numbers. Nah, I just kind of estimate in my head. Well, you, I'm just saying. I don't. I don't. I know. I know that you're safe. I know that you have skills. I know that you're comfortable with your airplane. You're. You're very in tune with it you take big breaks between fly you know between you know flights yeah but if you were like you said it surprises you at how good the performance is well yeah that is something that is easily dispelled with looking at the performance well i know i know but even even if i for me even if i had looked at the performance and been like oh okay i'm gonna perform really well today it still would have caught me off guard just because i I won't now, it should, if you're not, if you're thinking about it, well, then if you're thinking about it, like if I were there, I, I guess I can't say that. I'm just saying that if you were to really think about it, maybe the way that I think about it when I'm when I'm flying now professionally, get your mind wrapped around it. I think it would tell you what you need to know, and I don't think you'd be surprised at all. Well, I, for I'm just. 
but you guys fly so much more frequently. I'm talking to people who who don't fly nearly as frequently. It, I don't know. Yeah. It. But well, if I if you can put a, it's going to lift off in 500 it, feet versus 1100 feet. Let's and say that is something. You're well, like, oh yeah. wow, that's less than half of last time. But most people don't. Most people aren't going to run those numbers. Let's say you're somebody that rents an airplane and you've you had time over the winter and you're you're flying all winter. Let's I don't know. Let's say your job's seasonal and you have plenty of time to rent this airplane. You're flying all the time in the winter, and then all of a sudden your job picks up. You don't have time. Then all of a sudden it's July and you get a day off and you're like it's 90 degrees and I'm going to go fly. It's going to catch you off guard. The performance difference from what you were for me, you laugh, but laugh it up. I'm I'm not, I'm not laughing. I'm just saying I would Uh say the same thing I said a second ago. There's nothing Mm -hmm. about it that should catch you. And, and, and I, I understand sky. I understand you're saying, I'm not saying that you're saying that it's like a debilitating surprise. Like, Oh my God, I'm not saying it's, I'm not saying it's dangerous. I'm just saying like, I know that's what I was trying to say. It just, for me anyway, I don't know. I don't I'm just a regular GA pilot that flies five, ten hours a year, so I talking to people like me, I d I don't know. Jack, you had well, something I, I kinda of cut you off with earlier, sorry. No, no worries, man. I've yeah, I was just I've got another thought on that too. Like, you know, speaking of catching people off guard when you're flying airplanes, like if you fly different types of airplanes. Lee, you've probably been in this situation before. You go from, you know, flying a jet for a while and, you know, doing a bunch of legs in that, and then you get into a – what uh, What do you fly with your family? Uh, Cherokee 180. Yeah, so you go from the jet to that. I'm sure you, you look differently at flying the Cherokee than you do, um, you know, flying the jet, but sometimes that can catch you off guard. But I'll tell you one thing that I've learned is even when I get into small airplanes, which I don't very often with the family, sometimes I get into an Apache and go fly. Um, I go do it by myself usually first after I get out of the jet because the feeling is way different. So, you know, I mean, that's one of the things it it is. It it can be different. I mean, if you get into a different type of aircraft, like when I get into a small one after flying a jet for a while, I feel like I'm in a kite. You know, I'm like, all of a sudden. I'm waiting for people to call different takeoff speeds and they never call them because there's nobody sitting <laughs> next to me. And then I call for gear up and nobody brings it up because there's nobody to bring it up except me. <laughs> and I'm like, Jesus. And it's, you know, it takes me a while. So yeah, I'm taking off guard, but you know, one thing that I do do though, um, I may not get into the AFM, the aircraft, the airplane flight manual and run numbers, but I look at stuff. So, which I, you know, so even if you're not going to calculate it, you know, to the, to the, number like you do when you're flying a jet under part 135, you at least want to have an idea as to what's going on. Um, and I, I always do, even if I know the aircraft performance, like, yeah, I know what this thing can do at the certain time. I'm pretty much always looking at something. Yeah. Within the manual that says, even if I'm operating under part 91, instead of 135, I'm always looking at something to make sure that I have backing for what I'm about to do. And I fly in and out of the island airports, you know, namely put in bay with my family every summer a couple of times. But I, I, you know, I always I'm always checking something in the book. I just think it's good practice. And, you know, I've I've flown the islands and I've done some 
some other stuff before, you know, part 91, part 135. And I've been a professional jet pilot for a while, but uh, that's something that I, I think is important. Yeah, I think there's, a, I think it's, it's, I don't know where the issue is. Cause I mean, it was not really hit upon running numbers when I was learning to fly. And I, and I don't know if the Robin Scott will really back me up on that, but I imagine, but there's a lot to be gleaned. I mean, you can't, I would not say in a small, like a 150, for example, I would not say the, the AFM or the POH, uh, whatever the case may be. Um, I would not say that that would supersede having time in the seat. I think that probably would do, you know, do better for you, honestly. But like you said, when you're, when you're uh, flying under vastly different situations, uh, scenarios, whatever, or vastly different aircraft, even that little peak, you know, in the manual, even if it's just like general, like dry, no wind, gross weight number, that's 1100 feet. That's going to tell you a lot more than not opening the book at all. Yeah. You can add your own little, you know, 10% for, you know, it's grass and, and, oh, it's wet grass and whatever. You can start adding your own things and become with decent numbers. It's better than nothing. And And it made me feel better, right? Yeah. Well, that's what it's all about. You know, you have to have a baseline. If I'm trying to take off, and that's another thing we talked about, like you were talking about Santa Monica. So you go in there. And this could be anywhere, but I just know that margin was, was maybe a little bit closer. And you've got to be able to get back out too. Sure. Now, if it's just you and your light fuel and whatever, obviously everything changes. If you can make it in, you can probably make it back out. But when we're talking about in a commercial type setting, the, my assumption is that you're taking people out and you're trying to go somewhere. So you need fuel. So you're taking people and fuel and you can't leave them behind because everyone's paying for the flight. So you have to think about that. So just because you can get in somewhere doesn't mean you can get back out. So you need to make sure you're planning that trip out too. Um, and, and in the jets, that's maybe a little bit more obvious for us, but also applies to a light GA airplane. We run these numbers and technique wise, what can you do on landing? Probably a fair bit. You can probably chop a fair bit, fair bit off the book numbers, technique-wise. On takeoff, I don't know that you can fudge those numbers that much. Not as much. Not anywhere. How near much, as much can you do? How much yeah. can you do? You don't add fifty horsepower just because you're the one flying. You, know, you can yeah. leave weight behind, leave pastures behind. No, what you're right. Technique difference? Can you have less margin to play with? Yeah. For sure. And I think, you know, for a GA pilot, you know, we've talked about the regulations and a lot of the numbers and such, but I mean, for a GA pilot who's wanting to take something away, think it through, you know, even if you're not required, um, let's say to land in 60% of the landing distance available or, you know, certain things like that. If you think the situation through, you're going to be a lot farther ahead than if you don't. Um, I mean, that's it. I, I could probably leave that at that, but uh, if you think through, so we were talking about night stuff, right? Like night takeoffs and single engine aircraft. It doesn't matter whether it's a single engine aircraft operated under part 91 or 135, because a lot of single engine aircraft operate under part 135. Um, think through what your plan is. Um, you know, I know 135, 385 has to do with, with landing performance, but takeoff performance, 
if you're going to take off and depart in a, you know, a certain area, certain airspace, if you want to take this out to the mountains, to the extreme Aspen or something like that, if you're going to take a certain departure or accept a certain departure, you're required to be able to make a climb gradient based on two engines operating. If you're flying a two engine jet, but you don't have to be able to maintain that margin single engine. So in the regulations, nowhere is it required that you actually have to be able to maintain that climb gradient on the departure procedure. Um, you just have to have a plan. So taking that back into what we were talking about, um, you know, for part 135 landing requirements, even if you're operating under part 91, you know, think about having some sort of a plan, even though the regulation doesn't require you to be able to do something doesn't mean that you shouldn't be thinking about your safety margins. Exactly. 100%. And if you and the same thing, go ahead. No, I was just to say the same thing goes with, you know, an instrument takeoff under part 91, zero, zero. Where we got, what do we have? A mile, we have a mile 135. I always, for some reason, I always forget one mile for two engine airplanes. It's a one, yeah, one mile, and then you can get op specs under part 135 to get you lower than that. Like a lot of operators can do 500, 500 RVR, which is 500 feet, but yeah, one mile is standard. Standard, right? Yeah, that's how it's gonna, yeah. yeah. If you are interested in the takeoff version of this episode, episode um, uh, 29. We had a guest on named Jack Cochran, where we went single pilot versus multi-pilot ops climb performance requirements. Uh, it is a very long episode uh, that delves into this topic, actually. I don't know if you guys forgot that that's what we actually covered last time we had Cochran on, was the takeoff stuff. I just realized that, I just realized that now. Um, I did when I started talking about it, and I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> Full circle. Yeah, it's all good. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. And yeah. then um, we had... Da, 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 da. We mentioned the uh, Scott's Place. Uh, it is 88 Delta. We have episode 41. That is about um, the airport that we basically were talking about. Uh, grass strip, no uh, landing lights. That's episode 41 we go into detail. And then we've mentioned the Lake Erie Islands. We uh, briefly discussed those. If you have interest in episode 42... Just wanted to get that out there, plug some previous episodes. If people have had more interest in those few different things, uh, there are previous episodes now. And I did not remember those numbers. I just looked them up on my phone just now on the, uh, the <laughs> app. Um, that's good. Yeah, that's good. That's good anything uh, Anything else you guys can think of before we wrap it up as far as you want to get off your chest? Oh, man, I'm, I'm sure there is something. Jack, what you got? <laughs> I'll let you blaze a trail here, man. Yeah, the yeah. only thing else that I would, yeah, the only thing else that I would say is that um, so we were talking about the 135 regs. We didn't talk about DAP, which is Destination Airport Analysis Program. So, if there are 135 operators out there that uh, are talking about DAP and they want to learn or they are thinking about the regulations surrounding wet or slippery runway takeoff performance, we talked about the 60% rule. Um, it's a little bit different if the regulation allow if if you're land, planning to land on a runway that's forecast to be wet or slippery. That's the way they say it. The lawyers say it. Anything that's not dry. Um, there are some other things that have to be done for pre-flight planning. Um, destination airport analysis uh, allows you to land in 80% of the landing distance available instead of 60. You have to have an op spec for that. Uh, so for the listeners that are listening uh, that that have the authorization by the FAA via OPSPEC to use DAP. 
Uh, if you have any questions about any of that stuff, I don't know. Um, I'll be dropping you, emails. You, give Yeah, if, if, for sure. If anybody wants my email address and they want to talk about any of that stuff, uh, I'm open for that. So we'll, we'll drop your email with ours because uh, Mr. Cochran is like uh, the three of us. Email is his preferred method of communication. Yeah, um, feel free. Yeah, we'd love to talk about it. We'll nerd out. Mr. Griffin, you're revved and... No, I, no, I, uh, that's probably good. That's probably a good stopping point. Scott, you had something you wanted to bring up. About, if I did, um, I forgot what it was. Listener feedback argument, whether it was oh, you or me. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so a listener. <laughs> Before we wrap it up. A listener had a complaint about one of the hosts. Said they need to, <laughs> to, to ditch the guy that thinks he knows everything. <laughs> we were we weren't concerned we were confused as to whether that was me because I actually know everything. I think it's oh. me. Or Lee. I think it's thinks- Scott. I think they're talking about Scott. It could be me. It I could be Lee. Me. It could be Lee, because like he was complaining about the guy that, that thinks he knows everything, was where I I actually know everything and Lee thinks he knows everything. So that <laughs> In my mind, that sounds like it's more like Lee. But, but Mr. Listener, if you're listening tonight, let us know if your complaint was about Scott, myself, or Lee. And he didn't give myself the impression he was going to listen again. So, uh, yeah, I mean, really, even if he did, I don't just write that, that well, one here. If, if he does, if he does, well, otherwise. first of all, pound sand. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Pound salt uh, or sand, either one works fine. And uh, let us know. Depends on your geography. Let us know who you were complaining about. Okay. Um, Speaking of listener feedback, uh, we have a five-star written review in the Apple Podcasts app. Uh, We like five-star reviews. We're not like these other hosts. We're like, oh, yeah, just give us some feedback, you know, an honest rating. No, we don't. We, we want five think, stars. Yeah, we don't like, want four stars. We have no stars, interest stars, in anything less stars. than five stars. Like, doesn't even make yeah. sense. Okay, we're just everyone understands this. I don't. I don't. I don't understand why these other podcast hosts I listen to. You like? Oh yeah, just give us an honest. Fee. No, just give us yeah. five stars. We don't even care if you like the show. Yeah, yeah, you know, you send, honestly, if you send less than five stars, we're probably gonna. Let me think here for a so second. Don't make Wait, no. Let no. me think one second. We're gonna Photoshop. <laughs> no. A picture of you no. with some with a hooker and send it to your wife. Okay. <laughs> Five stars. <laughs> Mr. Boris will handle that. So you might um, not want to leave less than five stars. Walter. Uh, Walter. Five stars. Out. Stop. Walter. Five stars. Great A show. Really enjoy the show, guys. Been out of flying a while, and nice to hear people who have been in aviation a while need refreshers on the regs too, except for Scott, of course, in parentheses. I really (laughs) enjoy the antidotes from the GA and commercial perspectives each of you bring. I listen every day on my commute to work. Keep up the good work and looking forward to hearing this review on on a future episode when I finally get caught up. See, a lot of people are going back and listening to... Um, all of the episodes in order, which we certainly, it's great. You know, we, we love hearing that. The analytics certainly show a lot of people do that. 
Um, I do put in the. I do put. I do put in the so it's like there's a title and then there's like the lesser the subtitle. There's a few in there. I literally put skip this episode because it's really bad. Like literally, it's probably best just to skip those episodes. We have some serious bad episodes. We know it. And uh, we put in we put in there not to listen to them because it's just not it's like uh, I don't, we don't even want to listen to them. Yeah, that's bad. Rob's advice. He's, yeah, he's yeah. a barometer. If he says not to listen to it, who's, who's Lee's fan? I forget his name. Well, no, we, we're not. We're let's, not. Let's no, not no, 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 no. It's an email we didn't read. Uh, yeah. It was good. Yeah. But we didn't. We're not going to bring that up publicly. Yeah. That was me. Sorry, Lee. I just, I, <laughs> there's some. <laughs> There's some rather opinionated fans. Okay. There are. There are. <laughs> haters going to hate. Messages. That's what I've been saying. Haters going to hate. They either they're hate. They're not, not a hater, though. It seems like they I know. Either, no, I know. It seems like they either hate me or they hate Lee. Like, Rob's over here, like, avoiding all the flack and, like, they either hate yeah, me or you Lee. hate me. Yeah. We haven't gotten so any far, hate yeah. mail for Rob yet. So if you hate Rob, please send. An email f a r a m at scottboris.com yeah. uh, for all hate mail, whether it's me, Lee, or Scott. Yeah. That is the official hate mail email of the Farming Podcast is f a r a i m at scottboris.com. Yeah, the only people on the show that's gotten hate mail so far is me and Lee, and I feel like there's got to be a lot of Rob haters out there. That's Have you guys is, really gotten hate mail probably. over this? We'll talk about this later, but yeah, we get a, we get a little bit. Uh, the show is. Thank you, listener. We cannot even, we don't like to boast about numbers and stuff, but this show has been unbelievably uh, successful as far as the amount of people listening to it compared to what we thought it was when we started at the beginning of the oh, year. Yeah. And that's that's just all because of you guys and girls. Yeah, we, thank you so much. 5% uh, up to, I think, 6 or 8% female listenership now. And wow. we've gotten some emails uh, as well. Which, are we you. back? Are we back in China? Or are we still out of China? We use. We are still fully banned in China. Uh, thank to you, Scott. Well, um, I would just so like to. We lost that country. I, I don't think it's coming I think back I, anytime I think soon. I, get, I think I can get us back in. I think I can get us back oh, well, in. You can do that and in the shout outro. Out to, um, shout out to President Xi. <laughs> so <laughs> anyway. Um, Live. Okay, we covered the uh that we read the we read the five star on the Apple Podcast app. Thank you for we, that, Walter. Thank you. Appreciate thank it. you, thank you. We got off topic. Uh, but yeah, thank you for that review. We do we like uh five star reviews. We love five star written reviews because it gives us a chance to to read the review on on the show. Um when you just click the five stars, we do like it when you do that, obviously, but we can't really talk about an extra the number going up on the five stars, although it's good. It's just not conversation inspiring. Um, yeah. well live. Speaking of going into the new year here, I'm not sure which episode this is going to be, but we are doing a live component starting in 2021. Um, and if you are interested in the live streaming of the, recording sessions we're still continuing the show as normal through your podcast app player that you're listening to now that will not change but if you are interested in um seeing us record the show live uh head on over to robertberger.com b-e-r-g-e-r uh and then there's a live link 
you sign up for an email there and uh, we will when I have details I will give details via that email uh, that you sign up for on there um, we're thinking it's going to have some sort of chat component we're not sure how it's going to work yet we're going to roll with it though should be good should be interesting uh, if you're interested head on over to there robertberger.com backslash live and then uh, if you're not interested in that no worries show will go on we only do 50 episodes a year okay this is coming up we're getting to the end here and um just when you thought 2020 was weird enough 53 thursdays in 2020 so there will actually be a three-week delay until you uh, see us next year if you are going through far aim podcast withdrawals uh during those few week hiatus we'll probably be recording the next season ahead of time uh so like i said head on over robertberger.com live uh to get on that list and uh join us live and uh that is that is all i have thank you mr cochran for uh coming on i'm sure we'll have you on again um the in the live new year at some point um my pleasure happy to be here yeah uh, thank you for listening uh take care everybody thanks guys see ya bye guys thanks hey everyone it's robert Berger here um cutting in from the editing desk uh due to the copious number of show preps that i drank before recording this one i totally spaced saying everyone's emails and email being the preferred method of communication of the Far Aim podcast, I thought I would interlude here and uh, just get those out there. Uh, Lee Griffin's email is F-A-R-A-I-M at LeeGriffing.com, G-R-I-F-F-I-N-G. And uh, my email is F-A-R-A-I-M at RobertBerger.com, spelled B-E-R-G-E-R, the German way, not the sandwich way. And uh, Scott's is F-A-R-A-I-M at scottboris.com, B-O-R-E-S. And our uh, guest, Mr. Cochran, who's looking forward to geeking out over some things, uh, is Jack Cochran at hotmail.com. Cochran is spelled C-O-C-H-R-A-N-E. Thanks again for listening. Take care. Um, I need to pee. I do too. Okay, good. I, I got. I have too. more. I have more. Just go, that. man. Yeah, just go. That's the can, one. You, can you remember when you get back on where to continually? Um, I'm gonna write a note. Write a note, and then I'll just cut this out, and then I'll like we never even said I need to pee. Perfect. All right. Sweet. All right. Yep. What do I write? Scott, can you see Jack at all still? He's a map to me now. Yeah, he's a map now. I don't know what happened, but he's a map. I see, yeah. uh, I see Ohio and Lake Erie. It's, uh, yeah, it's like the western general Cleveland area. Yeah. It's like, uh, I see Huron. 
It's like you Huron, can see Huron. Yeah. With the far far left. Look at the Huron River. Huh. Huron River with the uh pier sticking out there. You see it. You don't see okay. Huron? You don't see Huron? No. Lee, no. do you see Huron? Jack Jack's think... map. Yeah, that or it's Vermilion. Yeah, that's Huron. That might be Vermilion. No, that's yeah, 100%. Sure that's God damn it, that's Huron. Don't. Who, who's questioning me? I think I am. No, that's Huron. Vermilion does not have a pier that sticks out into the lake like that. They won't even show up on the map. Huron has a pier that sticks out on the uh, west side of the river, not the uh, east side. Yeah, and that's that's what's sticking out is clearly the west side of the river. That's clearly the east side of the river. Okay, I think maybe you should get your eyes checked. Mr. Cochran, are you on? So so hold on, Scott. Yeah. Scott? Yeah. So uh, um, the shoreline in Huron, right north of your field, Goes northeast, northwest. I'm taking a southeast. photo of this so we can argue yeah. this till the end of time. We're gonna argue this. No, he's oh, no, Mr. Cocker's no. back. First of oh, all, here, hang on a second. First of all, it went away. I put there, these in right okay. before I heard you guys talking. There it goes. Okay, I there, yeah. there, that is 100% Huron. Unless you're looking at a different map than me, you're mentally retarded if you think that that's not Huron. <laughs> I just took a picture. I just took a picture of what nope, I'm looking at. Scott, you take a photo with your phone. Like. You take a nope. photo with your I just did. phone. I just did. And we're Good. I'm glad you did. Tomorrow morning, we're going to have an argument. That's, yeah. I will bet my entire net worth that that is here on. All right, Mr. Cochran, come back. You come. How do you, how are you flipping the map back? What are you doing? Dude, flipping? I have no, I'm. I'm just going hide cam. So I was actually oh, thinking I okay. need to Yeah, so I need a different name than amicable stereo too. I just realized that I'm oh, not yeah. very observant for Yeah. yeah <laughs> I wouldn't be allowed to leave a different name up there. I'd get in trouble for that. <laughs> I gave up. This is like our last this is like we we're like three episodes out from ending the season now. We're not yeah. even gonna be using Scott Squadcast anymore. So I gave it up. I've given up. Nice. Well, yeah, I won't be, worry about. It. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm an analog man in a digital world. No, at least so on a fist fight about our argument on your map. <laughs> well, I took a picture and I sent it to you guys. Yeah, well, I know you're retarded yeah. because anybody who could look at that would be like, yes, that's Huron's wrong. at like the almost the most southern point of Lake Erie, and the map you were trying to say was Huron is Lorraine. <laughs> Bro. I was going to say it's it's since it's like attached to my computer. It's got to be where I'm at, right? We definitely have map. different maps because that's not what my map looks like. All right. Okay, so hold on. Yeah, hold that's on not what my map looks like at all. Just make sure it's an easy transition. Well, yeah. So now you're back. That's called backtracking, Scott. That's called backtracking and back realizing pedaling. you're wrong. It's like no, Joe Biden. I'll, yeah, I'll yeah. send you my map, pussies. No. Well, okay, that's fine. That's fine. So, okay. So, in the root, so I'm going to try to segue into this splice it however you need to, Rob, right? I mean, that's right. Okay. Um, Scott's going to get a geography lesson here in the meantime. Yeah. Just making sure you know (laughs) where your geography is. (laughs) Well, we all saw a picture of Vermilion. 
<laughs> if that's vermilion, you probably shouldn't be flying because you're going to get lost. I should definitely be flying, and I don't think that would be. We need to see what you saw because maybe you saw something different. I just sent it. I just sent it. All Look right. at what I saw. I think I didn't, he's I didn't something care. different. All right. So, anyways, 